0: Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Joyce Vance, Barb McQuaid, and me, Kimberly Atkins-Store. Jill is away this week on a much-deserved break, and since the holiday season is approaching, it's time for you to order your hashtag sistersin-law merch. Go to politicon.com slash merch, where you can get sisters-in-law T-shirts, tote bags, water bottles, hoodies. I, I can't wait. I can't wait to, <laughs> to gift hoodies. I should, probably shouldn't have said that on the podcast, right? Forget that. Forget that. Nobody's getting that as a gift. Wink, wink. Um, (laughs) But today on the show, we'll look at where the abortion challenges are in the courts and where they go next and what the ramifications are of reversing Roe v. Wade. Then we'll take on the Supreme Court case challenging public carry gun laws and we'll discuss the term pushy women and how female (laughs) leaders are spoken to and covered in the media. And as always, we look forward to answering some of your questions at the end of the show. But first, you know, it is November. To me, the morning I wake up, the morning after Halloween, November 1st, immediately the first thing that is in my head is Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas. (laughs) The season is upon us. I'm super excited about it. Less excited, my husband. He does not like Thanksgiving getting all stepped over. And he doesn't even want to think about Christmas until all the Thanksgiving leftovers are done. So I wanted to ask you guys, when does the holiday season start? In your household, and also who's right, me or Greg? Joyce, what do you think?
1: I think you're always right, is between you and Greg. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's just my standard um, default position there. Look, we are all about holidays, and we celebrate holidays whether they belong to one of our faith traditions or our country of origin or not. My husband is Episcopalian. I'm Jewish. That means we get the best of most worlds. Uh, but we're also huge fans, for instance, of Diwali um, and other holidays that crop up throughout the calendar. So Thanksgiving is a big deal here. We celebrate with our family of choice, with some really close friends from Los. School and their children. And that's just the kick in to nonstop holiday December. What about you, Barb?
2: Yeah, I love the holidays too. And Kim, I I think I'm in your camp that holidays should start early because, you know, as you get older, time goes so quickly. And so if you don't start early, they're over before you blink. <laughs> and I also make it a tradition in my household not to take down the Christmas tree until at least Super Bowl Sunday, because um, <laughs> mostly because I'm lazy. Um, but because, I, you know, you, you go to all that effort to put it up. I want to keep it up there for a while. And I love it. I love the way it feels in the house. So our tree isn't up just yet. I don't know if you guys saw Clint Watts had his up like July 4th or something. He put <laughs> put it up on, on Twitter and people were tweeting back like much respect. Um, but I, I really like the holiday season. So, so Kim, you are correct. The holiday season begins, I think, um, I don't know, September 1st seems like a, a good enough day I would day agree to with
0: that. I would agree with that. And also winter is just hard for me when the leaves fall mm-hmm. off the trees and it's cold. At least if you have, you know, good cheer and decorations and lights, it just helps get you through at least part of the winter. So I am all for that. Uh, but Bob, now- I want to see pictures
1: when your tree goes up, okay? Will you
2: share pictures? All right. Deal. I'll share them with you. I don't, I don't know if I'm going to share
0: them publicly. Ooh. So now we turn to the big issues of the week. I want to start out with the abortion challenges and the ramifications of reversing Roe. You know,
1: we have had to talk so much about abortion in the last few episodes, and that's because there's so much going on. There are cases in Texas and Mississippi. And they portend an awful lot about what the future is going to look like in this country, maybe for more than just women who seek abortion rights. So all eyes were on the Supreme Court this past argument on on Monday when they heard the Texas abortion case. And while two conservative justices, Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh, may have had a little change of heart when it comes to whether to enjoin Texas's vigilante enforcement mechanism while its constitutionality is being litigated, there seems to be little doubt that their anti-abortion views will prevail when the court considers Dobbs the Mississippi case in December. And you would have to be asleep, and we know that our listeners are not, to have failed to understand that the rights guaranteed for almost 50 years by Roe versus Wade are at serious risk. So today we're going to take, I think, an additional step in this conversation and talk about some of the collateral consequences of losing Roe and abortion rights. As well as what's going on in the cases themselves, some of the direct consequences are already evident. Changes would be very swift following a reversal of Roe. There are 22 states that have laws that could make abortion illegal to the full extent permitted by the court following a decision in Dobbs, the Mississippi case, including currently unenforced uh, pre-Roe bans on abortion. Trigger laws that would go into effect once the court reverses Roe. I, I live under one of those here in Alabama. And currently, unconstitutional bans that have been blocked by the courts but that could go into effect shortly after an adverse decision in Dobbs. So the risk is real and it's serious. But let's start by looking at some of the collateral consequences of losing Roe, impacts that go beyond, quote, just making abortion unavailable in broad stretches of the country. Barb, why don't you start by telling us about this Oklahoma prosecution, the Pula case, and talk about the risk of miscarrying in a post-Roe versus Wade rule.
2: Yeah, there was a case last week in Oklahoma where um, a a defendant was sentenced after being convicted at trial. She was sentenced to four years in prison um, after she suffered a miscarriage when she had a a 17-week-old fetus uh, that was um, miscarried, um, and, and the fetus tested positive for methamphetamine. And so in that case, she was charged with manslaughter for the death of the fetus. You know, manslaughter is a law that says, typically, it varies by state exactly how it's defined, but an unintentional killing uh, with a reckless state of mind. And so if there are not protections for abortion rights, you could imagine uh, cases like this getting prosecuted around the country. There's also something, Joyce, you and I spoke about something called misdemeanor manslaughter, which is... Even if you weren't acting with a particular level of recklessness, if you are committing a misdemeanor and a death occurs as, occurs as a result, you can be uh, liable for that that death. So, if, for example, the possession of methamphetamine or the use of methamphetamine by the mother, that is now in the fetus's system, could make the mother liable for that death. And so, you know, you've got. A a mother who is already suffering from uh, the consequences of a miscarriage, and now she's being criminally charged. Uh, It's not the only place. We've seen similar cases in Alabama and California. You know, this Oklahoma
1: case is particularly shocking to me because there's a report by the medical examiner. And he declines to say that the methamphetamine is the, the reason that the woman miscarried. And so, of course, Barb, you and I both teach first-year criminal law. And one of the, the elements that you have to prove as the prosecution beyond a reasonable doubt in these cases is cause of death. And here mm-hmm. this woman gets convicted even though the government can't prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the misdemeanor she's involved in – uh, the possession case is the cause of death, which sort of boggles the mind. And this case, I think, perhaps gets reversed on appeal. But yeah, I think I'm going right. to keep an eye on
2: this one on appeal. It, sh- yeah. it really should, because it does not sound like they proved that element beyond a reasonable doubt. It doesn't. But the risk this opens up to women, mm-hmm. you know, who miscarry
1: and, and maybe somebody who just is upset with them goes to a district attorney. It's a really predatory environment. Um, Kim, talk a little bit about just how bad the criminalization of pregnancy can get. I mean, one case we've looked at involves prosecuting women who use drugs even legally
0: during pregnancy. Would it get worse if abortion was no longer legal? I, I think it absolutely would. And, and there's a case out of Alabama that I think um, demonstrates that, how uh, women can be Criminally prosecuted, even when a fetus isn't harmed, um, even when there's not a miscarriage or other other case. And in this case, uh, there was a woman who was pregnant, I believe, with her sixth child, and she had long suffered from really debilitating back pain. And she did not take any sort of medication for the majority of her pregnancy, but very close to to when she uh, when she got very close to birth. Her back pain just became excruciating and she had previously uh, been prescribed pain medication for it. She asked her doctor for a refill, got it and took it to get through. And so when she was giving birth, she actually told the people in the hospital that she had been taking this drug. They tested the baby who from the report that I've seen was born healthy and. Um, But tested the baby for opioids and the baby tested positive. And so she, as a result, uh, was reported and then ultimately charged with prescription fraud. Uh, The prosecutors say that she failed to disclose to her doctor that she was pregnant when she asked for this refill, refill and that that put a child in danger. And I think that's part of this really slippery slope. I normally don't like using that term because it's usually never true. But in this case, I think it really is um, a slippery slope of what could happen if um, if if Abortion is criminalized if, essentially, as with a lot of these trigger laws that are waiting that you talked about, some um, some of them include personhood. Um, if laws are passed which basically treat uh, any pregnancy, uh, the unborn child as a person from the point of conception, from the point that that. We know that they are there, that has so many unintended consequences that tend to, and this is important, either put uh, the mother or the childbearing parent uh, in legal jeopardy or reduce that person's liberty for the sake of expanding the liberty of the fetus, uh, whether or not the fetus really can, is at a point where they can live uh, after birth. And that's really. Terrifying, not just because it's counterindicated by um, all medical professionals. The American Medical Association has strongly rejected this approach because, particularly in cases, you know, involving drugs, for example, what the mother really needs is treatment. The mother doesn't need to be prosecuted and and face jail time um, if she is facing an addiction, and certainly not if she is not addicted and is using legal, um, legally prescribed drugs, as in this. Alabama case. But it can go even farther than that. I mean, think about it. If, if unborn children are essentially treated as people, um, what does that do to custody disputes? What does that do to um, child support disputes? What does that do to, to tax evaluations? I mean, it would, it would be so broad and so punitive in so many ways, both criminally and civilly, um, in ways that I just don't think that the legal system has fully grasped yet.
1: I think that's exactly right. I mean, the issue is unintended consequences and what happens. And in the Alabama case, it's opioids. But maybe what if you're taking antibiotics and they harm the fetus? Are you now somehow liable? What if you're in a minor car wreck and you miscarry? Is whoever hits you or are they now going to be charged with manslaughter? I mean, there are all of these crazy possible consequences. So, Barb, what would a, a post Roe United States look like? Would abortion become completely
2: unavailable to people who were seeking them? Well, I imagine it would revert to a state by state decision. So, in certain states, uh, I imagine the laws would stay just as they are, and there would be a right to, to an abortion at least, uh, you know, during when um, pre viability. Uh, But certainly in other states, we would see a ban. You know, states like Texas and uh, Louisiana and Mississippi have uh, endeavored to uh, make abortion illegal. Uh, And in fact, there are some laws kind of ready to go. There are 11 states that have what are called trigger laws that says if... Uh Roe gets reversed immediately, abortion is illegal in our state. We don't have to take any further action. So we won't have to go through the legislative process. The, the rules are on the books. The second row is reversed. Abortion is illegal in 11 states. There are nine other states, including Michigan, where there are pre-Roe statutes already on the books that you know got got um, uh, mooted out, became illegal when Roe was decided in 1973. But because they're still on the books, if Roe gets overturned, those laws are now legal again. And so in in those nine states, abortion would be banned. So now we're up to 20. Um, there are at least three states where the legislatures have made it clear that they seek, they would seek to uh, make abortion illegal. So sounds like about half the states would prohibit it. And then um, I imagine that for women seeking abortions in other states, they would either need to travel to states where it's lawful, or I think we'd see a return to what we saw before 1973, back alley abortions, a lot of dangerous in-home abortions, uh, you know, infection and other kinds of things where people try to take the law into their own hands, which is certainly not a safe uh scenario and then i think it also you know it's been a political issue for decades but i i have to believe that the politics of it will really be interesting uh, and you know there i think since 1973 we have seen the rise of the kind of progressive suburban woman voter and i wonder you know abortion is favored by i think choice i heard you say the other day 70 percent of the population that's right and so i wonder what what was the number was it 70 70 in that poll, the exit poll
1: numbers out of Virginia, I, I forget, but I mean, it was high even in Virginia. Yeah. It
2: was 59%, yeah. I think. And, and so if the majority of the voters actually prefer reproductive rights, I, I wonder what that does to our politics. Does it actually cause, you know, you, could this have a backfiring effect, for example, on conservatives and Republicans if, uh, if it empowers other blocks of voters who find this to be a motivating factor to get to the polls?
1: Yeah, I mean, what do you think about that, Kim? And and I wonder if it'll impact the Supreme Court too, right? I mean, as much as a majority of the court seems to be in favor of ending Roe, do you think that they might make a political calculation and
0: avoid outright reversing Roe? So I think there are two things happening here. On the point about the public uh, generally favoring um, being in support of abortion being legal in the country, I think there's a difference between that and just straight politically – than the voting electorate, because we have already seen, and in part because these laws, let's be clear, these laws do not put abortion out of the reach of everyone. It puts abortion out of the reach of people, except for the people who are privileged enough uh, and wealthy enough and, and just have the means to obtain it elsewhere, even if it's banned in their state, right? And I think possibly because of that, we've already seen a lot of laws really restrictive abortion laws be passed and the lawmakers who pass them in those states not be punished. Places like Missouri, um, where right now only uh, only in St. Louis are abortions performed. So anybody outside of St. Louis who does not have the means to travel Is not accessible to them. And there are a lot of other states like this that that don't get quite the attention of Texas because that law is so broad. But there's been a chipping away at abortion rights for the better part of a decade, and there has not been a political electoral backlash to that. And so I'm not expecting one moving forward. Maybe I'll be proven wrong, but I'm just not. Um, But as for the Supreme Court, yes, the Supreme Court is aware of its place in uh, history, it's aware we've seen it just and how it's responded in the Texas case, having this full hearing after making the docket uh, the the shadow docket ruling, which they got a lot of heat for, and suddenly they expedite arguments in that Texas case. I think that's in part in response to public um, outcry. So they're aware of what the public thinks. So what the court could do, First, they have this Mississippi case before they decide the Texas case on the merits that deals with a 15-week ban. They could find a way to say, you know what, a 15-week ban does not violate Rower or Casey. You know, you can say it's not an undue burden to ban abortions after 15 weeks and sort of ostensibly bless that law without reversing Roe so they don't get that headline Roe v. Wade is reversed. That's going to be a short term solution because this Texas law is coming and they're, it's, it's so violative of Roe, either it violates it or it doesn't or Roe has to go. Um, So at least they have a a moment where they can try to couch this to avoid the full political blowback. But I just don't have a lot of confidence. I think there are enough justices on the court who substantively disagree with the holding of Roe um, that it is in peril. And even if it isn't struck down by this Mississippi case that's challenged, it will happen soon after. Well, welcome to Gilead.
1: I guess we'll have to wait and see what the court does.
0: So, you know, Joyce, I have been doing yoga a lot. In fact, I am on a kick where I am doing 30 days straight of yoga. And I'm really thankful, um, as tough as it is sometimes, that I have um, at least very comfortable clothing on when I wear my girlfriend collective leggings and top. It makes me think about the yoga, think about my namaste and not think about, you know, my clothes pinching or pulling uncomfortably. What about you? What do you think about it?
1: You know, it's so important. It seems like in yoga where you're going upside down or or twisting yourself into pretzel poses, you really need to not be worrying about your clothes. So same here. You know, I've told you before, I have this problem. My daughter steals my girlfriend collective, but I do have one pair of shorts here and they're perfect for doing yoga. I really like them. And Barb, I know you love girlfriend collective too.
2: Well, you know what I like about Girlfriend Collective. I it's do. about the, the pockets, <laughs> pockets. <laughs> You know the tyranny of uh, women's clothing is so few items have pockets, but it's what I like about Girlfriend Collective. You know the uh, the skort, I use it to play tennis. It's got nice big pockets. I can put some tennis balls in there. And when your game is as weak as mine, you need lots of tennis balls so that when the ball goes into the net or out, you've got another ready to go. So yeah, I'm a big fan of Girlfriend Collective.
0: And Girlfriend Collective is sustainable and ethically made and offers inclusive sizing from extra extra small to 6XL on their selection of incredible bras, leggings, shorts, skorts, tanks, tees, and swimsuits. Whether you're working out, running errands, or doing nothing at all, Girlfriend Collective has functional fabrics, colors, and styles for any activity, and all their clothes and packaging are recyclable and consciously crafted. This season, we're in love with their best-selling squat-proof leggings. That's what we're talking about when you're doing that downward dog that comes with pockets and have different levels of support. So you know you'll find the perfect fit.
1: Join us in joining the collective today. You can have pockets too. For listeners of the show, Girlfriend Collective is offering $25 off your purchase of $100 or more when you go to girlfriend.com slash sisters. That's $25 off 100 or more when you go to girlfriend.com slash sisters.
0: So the U.S. Supreme Court is taking on the Second Amendment again, more than a decade after establishing an individual constitutional right to keep firearms in the home. And they could extend that right even further. So Joyce Tell us about the law being challenged here and what might happen.
1: So the Supreme Court here is considering a New York law. It requires people to show a special need for protection to get a license to carry a handgun. The law requires that people seeking a license to carry in public have to show, quote, proper cause and a majority of the justices seemed prepared to say that that law imposes an intolerable burden on rights that are guaranteed by the Second Amendment. I think that at least to me, and Kim, you might disagree, or Barb, I know you both listened to the argument, seems very likely to me that this law uh, is not going to be in existence anymore after the Supreme Court rules. But the question here is, what's the court prepared to do about that law, not liking that law, and how is that going to affect us? There are a lot of states that have New York-style laws. Other states have laws that essentially require the local sheriff or whoever the official is to issue a permit upon an application. You know, I go in and I say I'd like a permit, and as long as I'm not disqualified because I'm a felon or for some other reason, the sheriff is required to give me my, my permit to carry. So, This is another one of those areas, like abortion, where each state is entitled to have its own law, and the question is going to end up being whether there are constitutionally compelled limits on what kind of laws the states can have. A a decade ago in Heller, the court decided that there is an individual right to keep arms in the home for self-defense. And that's an interesting ruling because here's the text of the Second Amendment. It says, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So the open question after Heller, which is about keeping arms, the question that the court addresses here, is whether the second amendment permits people to bear guns in public. So here's the deal. If the court, as likely as, as I think it will, rejects the notion that a state can limit permit issuance, uh, the question is, are we going to have guns everywhere? And one of the interesting developments in oral argument was this notion that came to us from several of the justices that they seemed open to allowing the state to exclude guns from crowded public settings or other what's deemed sensitive places. And we could see a new rule that will not permit states to restrict who can get a permit, but it might, in something akin to the time, manner, and place restrictions that. First Amendment on speech, some sort of regulation for where you can keep guns. It's a very interesting new environment that we're going to see when this decision is handed down.
0: Yeah. And Barb, I mean, it, Joyce you you correctly pointed out that a good part of this argument had to do with wrangling over just how far that Heller holding went and and as you said it said that people have the individual right to own guns based on the first amendment in their home in their homes for self defense but Barb i don't remember seeing or hearing the word self defense in the second amendment <laughs> as Joyce just read it But it looks like that's being read into the actual constitutional analysis here. What's going on? And what happened to the well-regulated militia? Have we just forgotten about the militia? What's happening?
2: Yeah, you know, uh, uh, there's a group of justices in the Supreme Court who refer to themselves as originalists or textualists, uh, except when they're not. Uh, As in these scenarios, you know, they say, well, we should use the language of the Constitution and not look beyond that about the text, the words themselves as they were meant and interpreted at the time they were written, Um, except when it's not convenient. And so now the conversation seems to be all about, I'm really scared to walk through New York City without my gun. And and, and that was the focus of the argument the other day. Uh, Justice... Thomas also has referred to the Second Amendment as a second-class right that, uh, you know, we're, we're requiring licenses to be able to exercise this right. What other uh, right requires a license before we may exercise it? Well, what other right brings with it a deadly weapon? Uh, and, and so, you know, but like all other rights, the... Second Amendment is not unrestricted. And, you know, I think you hear this a lot from members of the public um, who don't know much about the law, and they'll say, I have a First Amendment right to say anything I want or do whatever I want, or, or you know, you can't, uh, I have a liberty interest and you can't make me take a vaccine. That, that's just not true. The government can take away your property, can take away um, your liberty, can even take away your life as long as there is due process. And so no constitutional right is absolute. But when you do look at the language of this, uh second amendment as you say kim it says that the the right to keep and bear arms it, it has, has this preface uh that says um uh, a well regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state comma the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed in that heller case uh that was decided in 2008 justice scalia you know again this big textualist says well it says that but it also says the people and in other constitutional provisions when they say the people they mean all the people they don't limit it to just some people and so therefore we should assume the people in the second amendment also means all people but they just completely erased out of that that that, that amendment the words a well regulated militia the other thing that cr- drives me crazy about these originalists what was a firearm what was a what was an arm like when the Second Amendment was written in the late 1700s. It was a musket with like one ball, right? I mean, it's just, it wasn't an AK-47. And so I, I feel like the textualists and originalists use that language when it's convenient to preserve a conservative viewpoint um, and yet are willing to just throw it out the window when, um, when it is not consistent. There is some language in Heller that I think is important that, that still exists. And in Heller, what they did say is that the right to keep and bear arms is not a right to keep and carry any weapon whatsoever in any manner whatsoever and for whatever purpose. And it talked a little bit um, about protecting sensitive places. You can prohibit felons, for example, from carrying firearms or people who are mentally infirm from carrying firearms. Um, and so uh, I am hopeful that even this court will try to decide this case in a narrow manner that will say uh, you know, less discretion for uh, the gun boards who are giving out these, these permits, but still Requiring some permitting, but it really is a great lesson. And be careful who you um, elect president because it really matters who is on the Supreme Court because deciding these cases is far more art than science. And they bring with them their worldview when they decide these cases.
0: And that's absolutely true. And that limiting language in Heller Barb that you talked about was crucial for Justice Kennedy. To join, be the fifth vote in that case. He did not want to sign on to the broadening of that Second Amendment right without that limiting principle. But he is no longer on the court, so they don't have to listen to him anymore. Um, And so we will see. I think that this will be very telling about uh, the view of this court, one thing I thought was interesting um, in this discussion about the the court and its reputation and how it's seen um, is during the the oral arguments. Look, we know that none of the justices leave their personal views at the door when they come to work. No, nobody does, and, and so it would be silly to believe that they do too. But I thought it was particularly interesting Justice Alito, who seemed just to be very and this is my view, at times almost giving NRA talking points during the oral argument in a way that felt very like straight and just that's, that's new. That's unusual to me. Right. And so one passage, I I just want to read a little bit of what he said. And he said, you know, could I explore what it means for ordinary law abiding citizens who feel they need to carry a firearm for self-defense? So I want to think about uh, people like this, people who work late at night in Manhattan. It might be somebody who cleans offices. It might be a doorman at an apartment. It might be a nurse or an orderly. It might be somebody who washes dishes. None of these people has a criminal record. They're all law-abiding citizens. They get off work around midnight, maybe even after midnight, they have to commute at home by subway, maybe by bus, and they arrive at the subway station or bus stop and they have to walk a distance through a high crime area and they apply for a license and they say, look, nobody has told, nobody has said, I'm going to mug you next Thursday. However, there have been a lot of muggings in this area and I'm scared to death. They do not get a license Is that right? And the New York Attorney General said, yes, in general, that is right. Now, I mean, high crime area, law abiding citizens, these were such loaded, really political um, phrases that he was using in this oral argument. And I just want to point out that um, the Service Employees International Union, who represents people like janitors, issued a statement of the president, Kyle Bragg of the local 32BJ uh, said Justice Alito knows nothing about the lives of doormans and janitors in New York City, or anything <laughs> about the lives and struggles of our members. I cond- I condemn his self serving use of our members um, to advance ignorant, uninformed, offensive stereotypes about New York City and the subway system. He ended by saying Justice Alito should keep our name at his mouth. Now, so normally we wouldn't get into like this, like political answering to this, but in this case, Justice Alito. Put yeah. himself in that. He took that role, and I just thought that was really fascinating.
1: You know, well, he, he deserved every bit of that, but even <laughs> beyond how offensive it was, what I was thinking about when he that was, you know, if I'm the employer, I don't want all of my employees to be armed at work. In fact, I probably <laughs> have a legitimate, you know, rule that says you can't bring your, your gun to work, I guess, in Justice Alito's vision of New York City if you're a hotel maid <laughs> or if you're a, you know, whatever people he thought he was talking about, we don't want to live in a world where everybody at work
2: is armed. And I'm sure him or on the bus or on the subway. Either. Yes, absolutely. I, and I think one of the things is what what they're, the judges justices are doing here, which I think is is inappropriate. And so often you see this. With conservatives making the argument that um, the federal government should not be the nanny state and telling states what to do. If states uh, have it in their view that this is in the best interest of the people of our state, we know our state best. We think our state is best when we, we we have dense populations in New York. We have New York City. We don't really want a lot of people walking around with guns. We think it's safer this way. And then Idaho or Wyoming can say, you know what? In our state, we don't have population density. And so in our state, we want everybody to have the right to have a gun because they're more often living in a rural area and a coyote might be coming by. So we would like for them to have guns and we don't have any restrictions on them. And that's great. That's the the reason we have this federalism system where we have state governments and federal governments. Um, And so permitting states to make their own decisions about what's in the best interest of the public safety of their citizens seems to me the way to go. We don't need Justice Alito sitting up there on his bench in Washington, D.C., telling New York you know, what, what is and isn't safe at midnight in New York
0: City. Yeah, I think the fact that he's from New Jersey doesn't help um, in, in that whole <laughs> analysis. But I think you're absolutely right. And it's important to know that this law it's not just a New York law. There are similar laws that would also be struck down in places like Massachusetts, we're talking a city like Boston, California, we're talking San Francisco, Los Angeles. It's a lot of densely populated places would be affected by this law. Can we just take a moment to say what an amazing job New York Solicitor General
1: Barbara Underwood, a former DOJ employee, did in this argument. She had to walk such a careful line, and I thought she was brilliant. Always Mm -hmm. credible, always honest, immaculately well-prepared, was very, very persistent.
2: Yeah, it was a great week for women uh, oral advocates, right? We had her, and we also had um, Elizabeth Prelogger. In the the Supreme Court in the um, abortion case on Monday. So, some, some very good, effective women advocates before the Supreme Court this week.
0: Yes, indeed.
1: So, Kim, have you been sleeping
0: lately? You know, I've been sleeping better since I have been using the Uller from Chili Sleep. The worst thing is to wake up in the middle of the night and feel so hot, and that happens to me so often, but there's just this little pad that I put on the bed that keeps the temperature much cooler, and I sleep much better. What about you, Barb?
2: Yeah, you know, nothing uh, is as important as a good night's sleep. I sleep like a baby, and Chilly Sleep is a big part of that.
1: Chili Sleep makes customizable climate controlled sleep solutions that help you improve your entire well being, like the Uller and Cube Sleep systems. They're hydro powered and temperature controlled mattress toppers that fit over your existing mattress to
2: provide your perfect sleep temperature. Whether you sleep hot or cold, these luxury mattress pads keep your bed at the perfect temperature for deep sleep, and they're designed to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and fire you up for your day. And for an extra layer of comfort, they also make the Chili Blanket, the only weighted blanket that can also be paired with a control unit for the ultimate sweat-free sleep. Can you imagine waking up and not feeling tired? Chili Sleep can help make that happen. Head over to chillysleepcom
1: slash sisters to learn more and save 20% off the purchase of any new sleep system. This offer is available exclusively for Sisters-in-Law listeners and only for a limited time. That's c-h-i-l-i, C-H-I-L-I slash sisters to take advantage of our exclusive discount and wake up refreshed every day.
2: Well, this week, did you folks see that video from a speech by uh, Mayor Muriel Bowser of, of D.C. that's been going around on Twitter? I, I think she said something like, retweet if you've ever been described as pushy. Uh, she was um, in a speech. She was criticizing the chairman of the D.C. City Council for opposing a candidate for the city's Arts and Humanities Commission. But Mayor Bowser said that the chairman gave us his reason for opposing this candidate was because she was pushy. Um, the chairman has denied making that statement, and later in the week, the candidate was confirmed. Um, but I just thought it was a great opportunity to talk about uh, this idea of pushy women. Have either of you ever been described as pushy? Where's Jill when we need her? How about you, Kim? Ever been <laughs> ever <everyone> been
0: called pushy? <sighs> I mean, yeah. I mean, I certainly listen. I think um, for me i am certainly aware of the fact that women who are assertive uh, and strong and who stand up for themselves and just do their jobs in their profession are often called, uh, you know, disparaging comments like pushy. Whereas, you know, a man would be assertive, a man would be a go-getter, but a woman is pushy. I think there is that. I've certainly experienced that. But at the same time, I have also experienced another phenomenon that when, um, women of color, black women speak out or assertive or, or do the same things that their colleagues do. They can be labeled angry, mm-hmm. you know, angry black yeah. women and, and uh, overly aggressive. And so we walk this line where you're trying not to be saddled with that angry label, but at the same time occupying the space that you fill fully because not only do you have the right to do that, but it's necessary uh, for you to do that. Um, and so it sort of it, it it sort of leaves you in this middle ground. It took me a long, long time to sort of dismiss all of that and say, look, if I have a job to do, if somebody mm-hmm. wants to label me in a disparaging way, that says more about yeah. them than it says about me. I need to do the job that I do, and it can come from a lot of forms. I mean, I'm sure for all of us, for for from um, practicing law, we've experienced negative. Uh, feedback from judges. We've experienced negative feedback from um, our, our opposing counsel or, or other folks. And it's take, it takes a lot to really get to a point where you have to dismiss that, leave all that behind and do your job and be assertive and not be afraid of how you'll be labeled a- after that.
2: Yeah, that was really good, Kim, except you should smile more. <laughs> <laughs> how about you, Joyce? Have you been described as a pushy woman?
1: you know i have never been called pushy to my face i feel certain i've been called pushy behind my back um but the the way that i think that criticism comes out right i mean we're a pg rated podcast but it's the whole issue of calling a woman a bitch, where you would call a man as kim says aggressive or assertive And i remember with clarity the first time that became an issue in my world i was 16 years old i was involved in high school debate Um, my debate partner was also a woman and we were beginning to have some success in the extremely competitive california debate world And I think pushy would be a fair description of us. We were assertive, we were aggressive, we were engaged, we enjoyed what we were doing. And it was, for God's sake, debate, right? I mean, if you're not pushy (laughs) in debate, then why are you even in the space? And I remember our debate coach, who I adored, took us aside and he said to us, people are gonna think that you're pushy, people are gonna accuse you of being unladylike, just ignore them and keep going. And that early, really positive affirmation that it was okay for us to be ourselves is something that has stuck around with me my whole life.
2: Yeah, I I too, Joyce, remember as a student being a law student um, in a, a class on trial advocacy, where I was, you know, advocating on behalf of my client, we were doing a mock trial, and then the grown-ups, uh, you know, who are actual practitioners, would give us feedback. And I can remember a lawyer telling me that uh, I needed to tone it down because jurors wouldn't like me because I would be perceived as too pushy. Uh, and I remember really feeling kind of kind of crushed by that, and doing a lot of self-reflection, like, gosh, maybe I come on too strong, maybe I'm too aggressive. And in years past, I have, in retrospect, concluded. Um, not at all. I, I think I was being appropriately uh, zealous in my advocacy on behalf of my client. Um, and as Kim said, it, you know, it said more about him than it said about me. Um, and uh, But I it think, stuck I around, Barb. I, I can hear in your
1: voice that there's still a part of you that's hurt by that. And I, and really I think <laughs> there's, there's a really important takeaway here for men as well as for women, right? I mean, we should just learn to ignore this sort of junk. But I think men need to be hypercritical of themselves in this space and other women too. Yeah. And make sure that they're not doing I mean this guy could have crushed your spirit. And look what you accomplished in your career.
2: Yeah, hey, so there, so there, thank you. But you know, I I, I wanna (laughs) ask you guys about something I, I, I see to this day. So you know that was um you know years ago so things have changed but have they I you know now Joyce and I both teach and I have you know brilliant students men and women in our classroom and yet I very often will hear um and and this is not you know always true by gender, but it is largely true by gender, that men will ask a question, and they will simply assert the question and, and ask it. And very, very often, I will hear women ask the same type of question, but it'll begin with things like, you know, this may be a dumb question, or I probably should already know this, or maybe you already covered this, but, and then they'll ask the question. And I have sometimes corrected such students and said, you know, you, you really should if, don't don't apologize for asking a question, just get in there and ask it. But it also comes from a place, I think, of humility, which is not such a bad thing, right? That a student who's in law school and is new um, is expressing that maybe I don't know all the answers. And, you know, maybe, maybe uh, I, you know, I'm asking this from a place of, and I'm, I'm, I'm demonstrating my humility ask, and asking this question. And I wonder, are we sometimes pushing women to be more like men when in fact we should be doing just the opposite and pushing men to be more like women? Like, is it so bad to... Um, show some humility and show I don't have all the answers and I defer to others who may have... I don't know. What do you guys think about that?
0: Yeah, I mean, I take that point about humility because that is an underutilized quality. And I think that certainly there are a lot of people, particularly a lot of men, who could use more of that. For me, I think it's more, and this is just my opinion, I think it's more... um, an example of how women, again, as I, was, as I was saying, we are often not allowed to occupy our full space. And I feel like it's more apologetic. It's us saying, okay, in this yeah. moment, I'm gonna be assertive and I'm gonna make a good point, mm-hmm. but I recognize that that's gonna make some people uncomfortable, so I'm gonna apologize for yeah. it uh, ahead of time because I want everyone to feel comfortable. Yeah, I didn't realize the, the extent to which I apologize until my husband pointed it out to me. Huh. And was you know he occasionally says you don't have to apologize for that and I didn't even realize I had made the apology. That's super. That's how deeply rooted that gets in us. And I consider myself a fairly confident. Um, person. And and I'm certainly not afraid to be pushy, but even for me, it's sort of been ingrained that you are supposed to smooth things over. You want people to like you, you want all that. And so that's the approach that women take. And I think that it harms us.
2: Yeah. You know, I I read some statistic once that said something like when applying for jobs, um, women will apply for a job um, uh, only when they believe that they meet all of the qualifications Um, You know, 100% of the qualifications, only 25% of women will apply for a job if they don't meet every one of the qualifications. Whereas for men, even if they don't meet all of the qualifications, 75% of them will apply for the job. And, you know, I tell that to women and women kind of laugh. And I I think the men have it right, right? Because you never know what it may be that the employer is looking for. You may have whatever is that one elusive quality that they're looking for. But I think that does speak to this idea of, you know, whatever you call it, assertiveness or pushiness or whatever it is, um, you need to get out there and get in the arena. And I think that uh, sometimes we hold ourselves back because other people are trying to, you know, keep us in our place. Well, yay for pushy women. I think we need Kim to channel her inner Roy Orbison and and serenade us with you know a rendition pushy of Pushy
0: Woman. <laughs> yeah, we are the best <laughs> pushy woman, greater than the rest pushy women. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Excellent.
0: Hey, Kim, how you digging that magic spoon these days? You know what? I really like it. Lately, my favorite flavor is maple waffle. It's perfect for autumn and, and you know, those nice uh, fall flavors. And as usual, I like it with yogurt. You can eat it any way that you want to. And you know that it has a nice dose of protein in there. So it's better than your average cereal. What about you, Joyce? Well, I had to call limits on any more Halloween
1: candy in our house, but I still want a little bit of a snack after um, dinner. So I've been following up on the advice that y'all have been giving and have been putting a little bit like it's granola um, on top of yogurt. Really a wonderful snack. I like it a lot.
2: Magic Spoon has 0 grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, 4 net grams of carbs, and is only 140 calories a serving. It's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, and low-carb. You can build your own box and customize it with Magic Spoon's delicious cocoa, fruity, frosted, peanut butter, blueberry, or cinnamon flavors. And is that all, Kim?
0: That is not all. Magic Spoon is bringing back two fan favorite flavors, cookies and cream and my favorite maple waffle, permanently. They're delicious, indulgent, and healthy. You've got to try them. Go to magicspoon.com sister to grab a custom bundle of cereal and try it today. Be sure to use our promo code sister at checkout to save $5 off your order.
2: Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember, get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com sister and use the code sister to save $5 off.
0: One of our favorite parts of each episode is answering questions from our listeners. If you have a question for us, please email us at sistersinlaw@politicon.com. Or tweet using hashtag sisters in law. If we don't get to your question during the show, keep an eye on your Twitter feeds throughout the week. We try to answer as many of your questions there as we can. So I want to start with our first question from Lefty in Boston, uh, which says, I have heard from a Wall Street Journal report and also from tweets from Ted Cruz about $450,000 being offered to immigrants from the Biden administration. Can you explain what that's all about? What about you, Joyce? Well, Lefty, shame on you for reading Ted Cruz tweets. You, you get what you deserve.
1: Um, what's happening here is this. The Wall Street Journal is reporting um, on apparent leaks from government lawyers that there are settlement talks underway in lawsuits that were filed against the United States by families that were separated at the border during the height of the Trump administration's family separation policy. This is three months in 2018 where kids are being ripped from their parents and sent off without information being collected that's needed to reunite the families. And there are close to a thousand cases or complaints that have been filed. And so the discussion here has been about settling those cases without the, the need to go all the way through trials. Those trials would be devastating to the United States. The evidence is just terrible. There is relatively clear liability. In fact, the first four cases that have now gone through motion to dismiss proceedings have gone really poorly for the United States. The cases have been permitted to go forward judges have referenced terrible facts including families that were kept in conditions that were um, like refrigerator cold without space to lie down and sleep overnight children that were sexually abused while they were in the custody of the united states there is nothing that gets better here for the government if these cases proceed into discovery so my hope is that despite the bad publicity this week Everyone will realize that these are cases that need to be settled. It's in the best interests of the United States, but it's also the right thing to do. I mean, we, in the sense that we're responsible for anything that the Trump administration did, but we as a government are responsible for these people, to these people, for the
0: harms they suffered, and it's time to do the right thing. All right, our next question is from Michael Binder. And he says, I have a question you may be able to help me with. Why was the Texas attorney general there today? I believe uh, he meant the Texas solicitor general who argued um, the case in the Texas abortion law. Um, Why was he there today if the state cannot be sued? Now that he has made Texas a party to the case, can SCOTUS use this fact to stay SB 8? So I think the question regards the fact that Texas is essentially asserting that they are the wrong people to be sued, that Texas should not be sued because no Texas official carries out this case. This case is um, or, or, or enforces this law. This law is enforced through private civil actions of its citizens. So that question is what we call a procedural question. This Hearing before the US Supreme Court only dealt with that matter. It did not deal with the substance of the challenge. And so, anytime there is a question about who is the proper party, who can or cannot be sued, that is settled in a procedural um, uh, stance that allows the person who is arguing that they are not the proper person to say, to make that argument. And by making that argument, that does not um, serve as an admission to the thing that you're arguing against. I mean, just think if the justice system work that way. If somebody sued you for something that had nothing to do with you, if by defending yourself, you made an admission that you were the right party to be sued, then that just wouldn't work. So that doesn't work in this case either. And finally, we have a question from Rich. He says, could you explain for the audience a couple terms used recently that I think may not be well understood by the public? One is misprision and the other is voir dire. Uh, P.S. We love your podcast. And when are the pins going to be available? They're available now, Rich. You can go to Politicon.com slash March and order your pins now and they will be shipping soon. So what about these terms, Uh Miss Prison and Vordire. I'll take
2: a stab at that. I thought you were calling me Miss Prison. Well Ms. <laughs> that in store. Let me tell you. You guys, we um, say Miss Prison in Alabama. What are you saying? Miss Prison? There's an I in there. We say Miss Prison. <laughs> well, you also how do you say how do you say the second um, term there, Joyce? Vordire. Well, I rest my case, so. <laughs> Miss Prison is how we say it here in the Eastern District of Michigan. But, you know, these terms do get pronounced differently around the country, like Giglio is a a doctrine under criminal law. And I know in the Eastern District of New York in Brooklyn, they call it like Giglio or something like that. So, yeah, so it is very regional. But um, to answer Rich's question, and thank you, Rich, for being so patient as we... uh, Mock each other here. Misprision is a crime, and it is a crime to actively conceal another crime. And so sometimes you'll see people get charged with this crime if they were um, aware of a crime and they helped, you know, uh, hide the evidence. uh, lied to the police, concealed someone who was a fugitive from justice. Any of those things can be considered misprision of a felony. So it's not enough that you knew a crime was committed, that's part of it, but you have to do something to actively conceal it. I will say this is a charge that often gets used as Perhaps uh, a charge to obtain leverage over somebody um, that you want to talk and, and share some more information because you know they know more than they're letting on. Um, or sometimes it is a compromise charge because it's usually a lesser penalized charge than something that's greater. So that's why you don't hear about it a lot. It is kind of a uh, more of a prosecutor's tool, I think, than one that's used frequently. Did you use it frequently, Joyce, in your district? We used it pretty No, well. it's used very infrequently. There's a big yeah. case in
1: the 11th Circuit, my circuit out of Florida, where a police officer was killed, and the girlfriend of the trigger man is prosecuted for voir dire for sort of backing the car in to conceal the license plate so the police can't track her and the boyfriend down. And that's, you know, it's for that sort of a situation where the underlying crime is so egregious, um, but you don't want to overcharge the girlfriend.
2: All right, so that's Miss Prision. As we say here in the northern parts. And then there's also this concept, of voir dire, which is how we say it here. And I know, Kim, you even said it differently, right? You said it
0: more, voir dire? Very, voir dire. I mean, it is based in. Very French sounding. Right? Yeah. It's French. It means, it it means uh, to see and to hear. And I think
2: um, it is is used in, it's a process for jury selection. So it means, you know, we've summoned all you people here today, and this is the point in the trial when you're going to be speaking, and when you're in the spotlight, and you're in the hot seat, we're going to ask you a number of questions, prospective jurors, and you have to tell us the truthful answers under oath. Um, And we're going to use those to assess your suitability to serve on this jury. And so there are a number of people who may be challenged for cause. That is, I know the defendant or I know the victim, in which case people uh, believe that you are not able to be fair uh, or unbiased in this case. And then there are also peremptory challenges, which are these discretionary challenges that both parties get and can exercise for any reason, except for one that is a discriminatory reason. So it might simply be, I'm worried that um, ministers on my jury will be too forgiving of defendants and want to give them a second chance. So I am going to, uh, peremptorily excuse them. Or I thought that woman was really hostile to me when I asked her some questions, um, and about her, um, uh, thoughts about, um, girlfriend collective. And so, uh, she doesn't seem to wear pockets. So I, (laughs) she's giving me a bad vibe. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna pick her. So that's, that's what voir
0: dire means. It's that jury selection process. And I misspoke. I, I took seven years of French, you would think that I would know better, but voir dear means uh to see and to speak, not to hear. And doesn't that. it have I, a I connotation of back. speaking the truth? That's what you're always yes. trying to get the jurors yes. to do when you're selecting them. That's yes, that's the um effect of it. But voir is to see and dear is to say and it's, though there are a lot of Latin words in the law, that's one of the few French ones that we have to, uh, that we have to deal with. So thank you all for listening to hashtag sisters in law with joyce fans barb McQuaid, and me kimberly atkins store we can't wait for joe wine banks to be back with us don't forget to send in your questions by email to sisters in law at politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag sisters in law also don't forget to go to politicon.com slash merch for all our amazing t-shirts hoodies bags buttons and pins and much much more this week's sponsors are Girlfriend Collective, Chili Sleep, and Magic Spoon. You can find their links in the show notes. Please support them because we are so grateful to them because they really help make the show happen. And to keep up with us every week, follow hashtag SistersInLaw on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review. We'd love to read your comments. See you next week with another episode. Hashtag SistersInLaw. in Law. Okay, what do you want to talk
1: about? Well, I will tell you something interesting. Ten years ago, I started this tradition of getting a fresh farm-raised turkey for Thanksgiving. And so my husband and his two best friends, one is a businessman for a bank I won't mention – and the other is the head of pediatric neurology at Children's Hospital here. So this is like three, you know, geeky professional guys. And they make this pilgrimage about an hour and a half north to a farm. And they come home with these beautiful turkeys. And then they compete over who's going to make the best turkey every year for Thanksgiving. And I absolutely love that. And I love turkey. My husband hates turkey. So he's decided spatchcocking is the only way to make it even <gasps> edible. But yes. it, he really does make it a-
0: turkey oh my goodness spatchcocking is the way my brother spatchcocked a turkey one year when i went to have thanksgiving with him in boston i had never heard of this, this the what is it i've never heard of it like- so you essentially split the bird down the middle so that it lays flat um so that it just imagine like it split down the rib cage yeah. through the middle mm-hmm. and it's flat And that way it cooks evenly so the problem with mm-hmm. the turkey when it's whole is that it cooks like the breast will be done before the rest of the body is so the breast is dried out this way it Mm -hmm. cooks faster and more evenly and you get a crispy skin you get like beautiful brown outside and and all of the meat is juicy so I think I'd enjoy eating
2: that. I think I would not enjoy preparing that because it is too much of a stark reminder that this was once a living thing. It reminds me when my daughter was about five years old. One day she was eating at the table and she said, hey mom, I just thought of something funny. There's a word, um, it's the same word for two different things. There's like chicken like the animal and chicken like you eat. And I thought, I am not going to correct her. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah i mean you know that's always the issue at our house at the dinner table you can't mention the origins of meat because i have a very mm-hmm. limited relationship with meat as it is and that's enough to ruin my appetite
2: especially oh. when chickens are your friends right? oh we chicken's don't eat chicken right in right our
1: in there. house there is no eating of the chicken no <laughs> chickens are our
2: friends oh my goodness